welcome to the Power of Sports podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff, a historian, speaker, and consultant working at the intersection of global sports, communications, and diplomacy. Dr. Krasnoff specializes in Franco-United States relations through sports. She's the author of Basketball Empire, France and the Making of a Global NBA and WNBA, which was published by Bloomsbury in 2023, as well as a publication of the United States Department of State entitled Views from the Embassy, the Role of the U.S. Diplomatic Community in France, 1914, and The Making of Les Bleus, Sport in France, 1958-2010, to which was published by Lexington Books in 2013. And her work on global sports has appeared with outlets such as Time, CNN International, The Athletic, and The New Yorker. Dr. Krasnov also directs the France and U.S. Project and is an adjunct instructor at New York University's Tisch Institute for Global Sport. So listen in as I talk to Dr. Krasnov about her beginnings in sport, her love of basketball, and why she thinks that the upcoming Olympic Games in Paris are going to be so exciting. Good morning, Lindsay. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to get together and talk shop. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate you being a guest on the show. And I'm really excited to talk to you about all of your work, prolific work. There's so much that we can talk about here. And But I always like to start from the beginning and just introduce my guests to the Lindsay who first experienced sports, whether that's as an athlete, a fan. How did you get into the world of sports? So I was born and raised just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. And according to family lore, my father would give me the baby bottles at night while watching the Bruins games on television. So sports have been, I've been steeped in sports for quite some time. My first live sporting events were going to Boston Bruin games with my father and my grandfather or going to Red Sox games because this is when, you know, Fenway was it was still when we were not winning anything for 86 years. Uh, the Through that experience, all of New England, who were Red Sox followers, not the part that was Yankee down in Connecticut, but uh, Red Sox Nation, long before we ever started winning World Series titles, again, it was one of those communal bonding things that every season would be the same. You would start off with all kinds of optimism and hope at the start of spring training and in April when they'd have the first pitch. By August, we're commiserating with each other that, oh, those bums, they did it again. They tanked and there goes the whole postseason. That was part of the the rhythm and the bump and the grind. While I grew up in Boston and the Celtics were dominant in the 1980s, I learned second grade math with one of my with my second grade teacher who had us keep track of Lakers versus Celtics stats that season. I was, and even though I work with basketball today, I was never as much plugged into the Celtics at that time. I think it was just more, there's only certain bandwidth and there's only so many things you can do with your kids. So it was Red Sox and it was Bruins. Interesting. Okay. So hockey and baseball. And was, did you have a favorite among the two? So 
My preference was for hockey. I loved going to the old Boston Garden, both the environment, the smell. You could just smell that it's been there. It had been there forever. The seats were tiny and uncomfortable. They're just like in Fenway too, by the way. And there were certain seats where you just had obstructed views, like at Fenway as well. And rather than complain and moan about it, most fans just gleefully accepted it because that was part of the penance of being a Bruins fan or a Sox fan, that real fans dealt with the quirks of these old stadiums because that was part of the heritage, that was part of the history, that was part of our shared background as Boston fans. So yeah, it was, I preferred hockey. It was much more fast paced. I can't watch hockey on television, even to this day. It's really difficult for me to follow the puck, even when they try to highlight it. It's not the same. I also don't watch baseball today on television. It's one of those more atmospheric games for me. I love going to them, but watching them in person, uh, there's just a lot that is subtracted from the equation for me. Those formative experience helped to still dictate some of my broadcast experience as well. Yeah. How interesting. And I think you're based in New York now, right? So what are your allegiances now to Boston sports? I'm still a hardcore Boston sports fan. Certainly the one exception being my WNBA allegiance is the New York Liberty, mostly because they have one of the French players, Marine Johannes, the wizard. And because I was not raised on a WNBA team, they didn't exist at the time. I feel that it's okay for my allegiance to be somewhat split there. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was basketball. I, I understand it wasn't your main focus as a child, but when did it become an object of interest for you? Basketball has always been in the background. It's been kind of part of the background noise. I went to my undergraduate experience was at George Washington University, in Washington, D.C. in the 1990s when the team habitually made the NCAA tournament, March Madness. And the team was very international. We had several Belarusian players, over time players also from London, from elsewhere. So it was always a very international mix on campus, not just the basketball teams, but also the soccer teams and other sporting teams. So in college, I remember that watching and cheering at the basketball games, whether we were in the arena when they were playing at home or away games or tournament games, everyone could commune in the student dining hall, which was called J Street. And they would, you would get there early so you could stake out a table for your group. And they would play it on these large panel TVs. And it, that was part of the community fostering experience. The perhaps the only part of school spirit that really percolated at time on, a, on an urban campus. And it was really special and unique. And so basketball was in the background then. And as I moved into my graduate study, particularly the PhD work, as I was researching the history and evolution of French sports and sports policies, I did a little bit of a sidebar on basketball, mostly because that's what I could find in the archives at the time. And by then, Tony Parker had emerged in the NBA and there was a little bit of indication that, yeah, the the French can play very high-level basketball and break through in the NBA. But going down the basketball rabbit hole, as it were, has really been in the past 10 years. And it's been fascinating for me to come to this experience at the same time when the game is expanding overseas in terms of who plays, but also who consumes it, who is mediatizing it. 
as well as the expansion of the international labor force in all of the world's elite basketball leagues, whether it's the NBA, the WNBA, EuroLeague, but also the NCAA too. So it's a really, for me, it's a really fun and exciting time to be in the basketball field. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to just step back really quickly. What about the policy angle? Like, how did it become a, a focus on sports policy? Where was, is there an origin story there? It's not a terribly fun origin story. Oh. It's more a fact of, as historians, by default, part of what we're trained to do is to go into archives sure. and to look for documents that help to explain some of what's happened. And while I have done a lot of work with media archives, when I was working on my PhD dissertation, I did spend some time in the French government archives. They have a ministry of youth and sport. So I was in those archives and most of what was there was pretty much related to policy decisions and the sports policies put into place by the fifth Republic and why they were put into place. It was less on really, it was less related or at least the archives I was in, it was less related to other things. So that helps to explain why my initial focus was on policy, the underpinnings of how the French created and put into place a system of elite youth sports development that produced Les Bleus. And it took a while for that to come into focus. But that is how I wound up focusing at least on policy at first. And looking back in hindsight, that was perhaps a good step because once I had the understanding of the policy that provides the backbones, then all the really fun, cool stuff, such as the youth academy system in private clubs, the media angle, the cultural angle, everything else falls more neatly into place once I had established that this is how it worked, mm -hmm. how the system works, how it's changed, and here's why. Absolutely. And was it a foregone conclusion that the policy you would look at in France would be sports policy? Or did you, were you interested in other aspects of social policy in France? Or I guess I should really ask you about your connection to France. Well, how did that begin? The connection to France began as a kid. My parents left my brother and I for two weeks to go on vacation in France. And it was the first time they had left us home alone. Usually we would travel with them on business. And I, I remember my little eight-year-old self thinking, what's so special that they would leave us behind? Aww. I had a blast with the family we stayed with. But so it stemmed from that. And they brought back the obligatory t-shirts with the Tour Eiffel and all the other mm -hmm. iconic sites on it. So it started. But in high school, when I had the option of which foreign language to start to study, I was persuaded to select French because my father, his company worked with a French counterpart. And so he had spent quite a bit of time in France with colleagues and they would teach him about the culture and the history beyond just the business and engineering side that they focused on professionally. And so through that is how I came to my interest in France. And one thing I would have to say for the French and the French language instruction that is perpetuated around the world is that they have it down to the fine art of not just exposing people to the culture and everything else through the language, but also they do a good job trying to implement it as lasting loves in a variety of ways. So that was my first hook into France. I, After undergraduate, I 
went back to school to train to be a sports journalist. I had been bitten by the bug. And at that point in time, I had to write a series of investigative journalistic articles, but something dealing with France and sport. So I chose to look at how they make Le Bleu, the football Le Bleu, mm -hmm. because they had just won FIFA World Cup and the European Championship. And my advisor at the time, his daughters were big into the youth soccer circuit in Boston. And he posed the question to me, he said, but how do they make Le Bleu? Is it the same youth system that we're used to here in the U.S.? Is it different? How is it different? Why? And so that was my first entry point into the making of Les Bleus, of any kind of Les Bleus, how they make youth footballers in France. Turn of the 21st century, when I went back for the PhD, I took to heart the saying that choose a topic you're genuinely interested in and fascinated by because you're going to be married to it for seven years. It's ideal if not a lot of other people have worked on it either. And so this was my entry portal. If I knew how, if I understood at that point, how France made elite level fair soccer players, was it always like that? How did it come to be? And was it just football or was it other sports? So the long answer to your question is, yes, it was when I began my, my, my career um, as a historian, I was already on the track to ensure that it incorporated something France and something sport. Uh, so that was why my first archival experiences were related to sports. Sports policy. It's so interesting to me too, Lindsay, because your experience parallels mine in one, I think, important respect. My, my father had told me when I started the PhD, he said, just finish. A lot of people don't finish. And I guess he had known some people who or were ABD or just had dropped out or something like that. He's not an academic himself, at least not officially. He's a book, a bookworm. But uh, so I thought the same thing that you did. I thought sports are, they captivate my interest and why not combine that with my interest in Japan? So that's so fascinating that you had the similar experience nonetheless. So that was your first, was the making of Le Bleu sport in France, 1958 to 2010. And was that your dissertation reimagined for a book, large it's audience? Exactly. And my advisory committee and my main advisor, they were all very forward looking in, in terms of their strategy and encouraging me to write the dissertation as a pretty much as a book. So yeah. that then after the defense and the revisions, there would be very little need to be done to get it published as a book. So I was very much I owe so much to that entire committee for forcing me to do the hardest part of the work first yeah, <laughs> and I then getting you. it in. But yeah. So that was the first book. And while it focused predominantly on football, there was a little bit of sidebar in basketball because there is more information in the archives on some of the basketball youth programs at the time. How interesting. Mm -hmm. That's quite interesting to me. Did that strike you as something that was surprising that there would be more on basketball than soccer? In retrospect, knowing what I know now, not terribly surprising because one, the French Football Federation, the three Fs, as they call it in France, has from the get-go done a lot more as a federation with their training up and down the up and down the ladder from the elite to the grassroots. And they have really perfected the art of detection and then training and development. And this began in the around 1973. 
and later became the model for other federations to do that. Being said, I am not surprised that the football records are not all there in the same place as the records for basketball or fencing or judo or other sports within school systems, simply that the as the kind of the biggest fish around in the tank, the three Fs had their own prerogatives. And I understand that they had their own archival holdings. I have right. not gone in them, but that's been a development since I was doing this research. I think if someone were researching on the topic today, I would definitely route you to different places in terms of where that documentation exists. That being said, I did work through a liaison with the three Fs to go through some of the documentation they had readily available at the time. And that was the series of yearly rules and regulations that they published at the start of each season that, yes, laid out the rules for the professional leagues, but also the rules and regulations for all of the quote unquote apprentice footballers in the club's youth academies, which were mandatory, I think, after the starting with the 1978 season, if my memory serves, at least for the top division. And so there were specific things that had to occur that had to be in place and also specific monetary amounts that were paid either each week or each month to these apprentice footballers when they were signed into the academy. So there was that kind of documentation, which I used extensively in my dissertation. One of the things that I learned from that experience and my subsequent professional capacities where I was very much interacting with the French sports world, including those who had been in the programs at that time and are now well into their professional careers of different phases, is that what appears on paper and what the reality is can occasionally be the same thing but oftentimes can be vastly different, even if the same rules and regulations are in place, the experience is vastly different than what it might appear on paper. And so that was one of the big takeaways from that first book and dissertation and experience that while building knowledge and understandings based on the archives is very useful and necessary, it's also particularly with topics like sports that have such a high human touch level and emotional intelligence related to it that you can't rely just on archival materials, whether it's documents or footage. You really need a lot more than that. And when I started working on the basketball book on Basketball Empire, there there wasn't a lot of that additional so what out in the public discourse. And so that is why I wound up doing as many oral history interviews or media interviews. I used both in the book. I, While I was writing the book, I was doing some press work on French basketball players in, in the U.S. and used some of the material that did not make it in the published press pieces, but which had been given and authorized as on, on record. I on used record. some of that. Some of the stuff that were initially on the media cutting room floor made it into the book and I think helped to really provide much fuller dimension to my own understanding of basketball and everything that was involved. And had I only gone based on what was in the archives, what's been printed, what has been on video archives, or even just on the player's social media, I think it would still have been quite a vastly different book. Absolutely. That's, that shines through very much. So I was impressed by that. And obviously you mentioned already, you have a, 
a background in journalism and you're a great writer. So it was a great combination of history with great writing. And that shines through really clearly. And so walk me through a little bit more of that transition, because I know you mentioned you had studied journalism, sports journalism. And then I assume that was before you did your PhD. Is that a fair assumption? And then you also worked at the State Department. So how does it all how does it all fit together? Yeah. So when I graduated from journalism school, that was right around when the first internet bubble burst, including Mm -hmm. the publishing and digital journalism. Uh, While I worked freelance for a sports publisher, I edited game day publications, the same things that you get when you go to any game, even still today. And that was actually a very handy experience in terms of not necessarily the writing, but how to edit and to be use active past tense and to be direct. Uh, So that experience helped my writing. But while I was freelancing, I decided to go back to uh, school for the PhD, began that process. And right as I was about to go on the academic job market in 2007, that was the start of the financial collapse. And I I recall that year, something like 40% of tenure track history jobs that had been put on the market were rescinded. And I have, at first I was thinking, okay, so it's good that I've been continuing to work on other things and not you know, holding that as the, the only hope. But I came across a job posting for historians needed at the U.S. Department of State. And even though I trained as a modern Europeanist, I put my hat in the ring and after a long series of process, I, I was hired. And their reasoning at that time, and I believe it's still true today, is that when you go through the PhD training process, regardless of the content knowledge of your given field or area, it is the skills that you build and refine, not just the research and the writing skills, but all kinds of skills that they were looking for, people who do that. So I... Once I was hired and started working for the Department of State, I switched. I learned a whole of a lot more about the history of U.S. foreign policy, U.S. diplomatic history, and the history of the department itself. So it was it was an interesting re refocus, not totally a one hundred eighty degree turn, but oh. it, it was definitely a pivot. Within that, my portfolio was the history of U.S. relations with Europe. So at least I got to draw extensively upon the knowledge that I gained as a history of modern Europe. And as it started to, as I got more embedded at the department after after my first few years, started finding ways to bring the sports angle in. First, it was through giving sports briefings to ambassadors before they went out to post in Europe. Mostly, these are actually really fun. It would be hour and a half long luncheons that we would do and I would chat with them about what sports were popular in the country where they would be going and why mm-hmm. and how it differed from what they were used to in the United States and why. And then we would start to brainstorm ideas for what they might want to do with sports in terms of public diplomacy and outreach once they were situated on the level, which for me was also really interesting to better understand their thinking process and how they approach these things. But also for me, handy to point out things such as unless you're maybe in the Netherlands or Italy or Greece, baseball might not be the primary sport you seek to engage with. You will always find people to engage with through baseball, but there might not be the same 
quantity of numbers or the same diversity of population, simply because outside of those few countries in Europe, it's not terribly widely known. It's a very boutique sport. Soccer, on the other hand, basketball, tennis, much more widely played and known. And so there's easier points of communality there. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about basketball because obviously that's a shared interest of ours. And your book, Basketball Empire, your second book, really captures how important it is to the French and not just the French, but all of these former colonies of the French and people who have a connection to, to, to France. I almost said Japan there to, to France, but to basketball as well. And so tell me about some of the, the star players that maybe some of the listeners may not know that they're even French or that they have some connection to the French colonies. Who, who would be the, the first people that you would talk about? So Tony Parker is probably going to be at the top of everyone's list. A recent uh, inductee to the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame, class of 2023, and obviously a very pivotal figure. Tony Parker breaking through in the NBA, becoming part of the San Antonio Spurs starting five within his first few games as a rookie was huge and helped to prove that you can be French and play in the NBA. And that the fact that Tony Parker not only won NBA championship rings with the Spurs, that he was all-star and MVP and had all the individual accolades, but also that he had such a long career. I think he played, what, 18 years in the NBA, something right around there. That is significant as well because it shows that it was not just a one-off or a flame out, that it was a star caliber player who had a very lengthy career as a player in the game and has since crafted a career within the game once he retired and hung up his sneakers. He's a owner of a pro basketball team in France and many other things. Yeah. So Tony Parker would be the first person at the top of the list, but you will not find one dedicated chapter to him in Basketball Empire, mostly because the dedicated chapters are centered around those who sat, I was able to sit down for interviews with, not based on their importance to the larger picture, but who I had access to. Of course, Tony Parker shows up in the book and his role is certainly acknowledged and flagged for readers. But Tony Parker would be one of the premier names that most people, I think, at this point might associate with being French. But there's a whole heck of a lot others that are French that the general public might not know of, but who are big for French basketball, even if they might not be as widely known in France themselves, starting with Boris Diaw, Tony Parker's best friend since uh, they went to school together uh, for basketball outside of Paris. Boris Diaw, who, again, had a very lengthy NBA career, went to play one season pro in France, hung up his sneakers, has been the national team general manager serving as a liaison with NBA players and WNBA players since then, but also who came out of playing retirement this season. He's playing in, I think, the third division in France with a mission to win a trophy for his hometown team just outside of Bordeaux down in southwestern France. Oh, wow. So, yeah, characters like him who really embody the larger basketball family that Basketball Empire talks about. And it's a family in terms of basketball DNA, maybe not always in terms of bloodlines, although certainly with players like Boris Diaw, Basketball runs in his blood. His mother, Elizabeth Ruffiud, is one of France's all-time hoops heroines. 
She was one of the first and biggest stars of the 19s, helped the national team become dominant in Europe for a while. Also, her club, Claremont University Club, Cook, dominated European continental play throughout from the late 1960s through the early 1980s and would regularly play rivals from the Soviet Union and would travel all of the European continent as part of their training and season. So uh, players like Boris Diaw, they've got it in his blood. But then there's others who make up this larger basketball family. And because basketball is not, it's a small sport in France, although everyone knows of it, most people learn how to play it in weekly PE classes. It's still a pretty small sport. It's not nearly as big and commercial as it is in the United States. So those who play, especially at the elite level or even at the pro level, they all come across each other. They know of each other as they play with the national team. That's an additional part of the family. And so you've got players like Sandrine Gruda, who won the WNBA championship in 2016 with the Sparks in Los Angeles, who has gone on to win so many other titles in Europe with the national team and is still playing. She's playing with Tony Parker's team in Asvel in Lyon and is looking to make a mark at Paris this summer. That's great. And tell me about uh, Nick Batum. I know you, you've written about Nick and I'd love to hear what you would like to share about him. The chapter, Basketball Empire's chapter on Nick Batum and Marine Johannes, two kids born in the same hometown in Normandy who attain their dreams playing pro in the U.S. It was one of my favorite ones to write, mostly because I think it really embodies the sense of basketball empire in not just a cultural sense, but in a geographical sense as well. Nick Batum, his father was born in Africa and came to, went to France, I think by as a 10 or 11 year old and played professionally in France. Nick's mother, from born and raised in mainland France, as was Nick himself. And his basketball DNA runs directly through national team coach Vincent Collet, who himself is the product of numerous generations of basketball aficondos and those who have been open to outside influences in following their passion for the game. And Nick has subsequently become something like a elder figure for French players coming into the NBA, but also into the WNBA, very much helping to maybe maybe mentor is not exactly the right word, but being a sounding board and a place to go to to chat things over for Marine Johannes as she made the transition or the decisions in terms of a career in the WNBA and everything that entails and the ups and downs of it, as well as with national team service and all of that. So that was one of my favorite chapters to write just in terms of how it embodies kind of everything that the book builds towards and talks about the older generations, the different types of influences that help to make French basketball today, but also importantly, the sense of giving back. You hear this from Batum, you hear this from Rudy Gobert, most recently Evan Fournier, any of the French players who are playing in the NBA or the WNBA or the NCAA who have been part of the national teams at the senior level or at the youth levels, and there are many at the youth levels, they, you hear this very often from this them, the idea that it's not about them, it's about the larger basketball goals for France and for basketball within France. Yes, it is about winning things, but it's also to try to make the sport 
more respected and popularized and seen as well as more popularly played. That's so interesting. Again, parallels I found in Japan and in terms of basketball there. I think what's interesting to me is that in Japan, they're still looking for that homegrown star. They have Rui Hachimura, of course, who is a great player. But some Japanese people don't perceive him as entirely homegrown in the sense that his father's from Benin. And so I think there's some kind of controversy over that, which I've written extensively about in terms of the racial and ethnic implications. But they do have some players who are homegrown, quote unquote, fully Japanese people who are seen that way in Japan. And those are the people who I think they're waiting to become a Tony Parker type player, somebody who becomes a Hall of Famer. So that seems to be a real focus of Japanese people who are fixated on basketball. And that's why I'm calling my new book Shooting for the Stars, because it's about how are they going to make these stars? So how are they going to develop their youth sports? So it's fascinating to hear you talk about some similar issues in, in France, but at the same time, the French have produced an enormous number of really successful players, not just Tony Parker, as you said, but mm-hmm. Rudy Gobert and Fournier, and then, of course, Victor Webinyama, who we haven't even talked mm-hmm. about yet, but the number one overall pick in last year's drafts. What do you make of Victor Webinyama? He's an incredible story, I think. He is such an incredible story, and he only barely turned 20. And that's the, and he has the, when you read his interviews or listen to his interactions on the record, whether it's with reporters or whether it's captured on social media, he sounds far more mature than I was when I was 20 by far. So I think Victor Juan Banyama is, I think he's a great illustration of the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. Not just in terms of his athletic talent, his basketball IQ, his phenomenal physique being 7'4", and the way that he's able to move his body around the court and in tune with his teammates and the ball, but also in terms of his ability to meet head-on this media and public juggernaut that's been thrown at him for over a year now and how he's handled himself throughout that. So I think he's absolutely fascinating. And he's not the only one. His good friend, Bilal Koulibaly, who played with him at Mets 92 last season and was also drafted. He was drafted by the Washington Wizards. He was the number, I think, seven NBA draft pick in 2023. And Bilal Koulibaly's been doing really great things on court with the Washington Wizards. It's been, I think, glossed over with the media storm over Juan Banyama. And also the Wizards don't have exactly the best record in the East either. But Bilal Koulibaly has similarly been doing very good things on court with his teammates, with the community, and also, again, very mature in his approach towards public engagement. But also there's been some really great stories coming out of Washington, D.C. about Koulibaly's growing friendship with Jordan Poole, Mm -hmm. one of his American teammates, and how and that informal sports diplomacy that they're engaging in the locker room and on court, teaching French and better learning and understanding parts of American culture or the NBA. That's, for me, been one of the really interesting stories emerging throughout the season. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to learn more from you about this notion of, of sports diplomacy. It does seem like it, it exists on multiple levels, right? Obviously, the governmental level with ambassadors who so you directly trained, but also these players who are doing it maybe more informally 
But let's go back just a little bit. I want to ask you about the history of how this becomes a sport that's even a thing in France at all, because it, it's been a thing in France for a hundred years, right? It's not like they basketball recently. It's been a little, maybe not the most popular sport, but up there in terms of attracting young athletic players. So what do you think is important about the history of this connection between the U.S. and France in terms of building basketball in France? One, that France is the oldest basketball playing country outside of North America over 100 years, as you said, 130 years this past December. So that counts for a lot, even if it, as you write it, just has never been as popular as it is in the United States. But also, too, that French basketball, like French culture more broadly, is not as inward looking as I think a lot of people think it is, or the stereotype of French culture. French basketball, like French culture, can be, not always, but can be remarkably open to outside ideas and influences. They can take outside or other cultural entities, internalize them, work with them, and then spit them out as something that was marketed as uniquely French. Think of the croissant, right? Mm -hmm. Very Mm -hmm. stereotypical French pastry, very buttery, very delicious. That began life as an Austrian pastry. Is that right? The French got a hold of it, added lots of butter and all kinds of wonderful things, and made it into this very light, fluffy, flaky pastry. You see it in gastronomy. You see it in things like Elizabeth Becker is a journalist who has a really fascinating book out on the evolution of tourism. And one of the examples she details in that is the French tourist industry, which today, France is the number one tourist destination in the world and has been for many years. And she looks at how In the aftermath of World War II, French hoteliers and other hospitality, they studied in the United States, they studied the U.S. hospitality system as well as others to better understood what travelers and voyagers, both for business and leisure, were after and required in their hotels. And they took it back home and worked with it and might have taken some time, but helped to make France one of the premier tourist destinations in the world. And so... That's another example we have. Music, you have the same sort of thing, but the French really took to jazz. And today, one of the strongest jazz scenes in the world comes from France. Same with hip hop and rap. The Francophone market is the, and French is the largest market of the genre outside of the United States. So it's not just sports, it's other cultural entities. But in basketball, it's long been the case that the French have been open to outside influences dating back since basketball was first imported in the 1890s, particularly in the post-World War II period. Mm-hmm. If, say, the interwar period you know, the, from 1917 through 1919 was maybe the exception with the introduction of U.S. doughboys, stammies as they call them, helping to revitalize interest in the game, the interwar period it, it was pretty insular in the French were instead trying to teach basketball elsewhere um, in the continent as well as the empire. But it's the post-1945 period that French basketball, led by the eventual long-term president of the French Basketball Federation, Robert Busnel, realized that in order to maintain French basketball relevancy at the international level, so in order to remain competitive and to try to win titles, or if not titles, then podium finishes, it was necessary to evolve the game, to make sure that French players 
could compete with the best in the world. And to do that, you could not remain stagnant. You had to continue to evolve as the game evolved. Part of that was in the post-World War II period, part of that was trying to find ever taller players. Once the Eastern Bloc started showing up with teams of supernaturally tall players, it became increasingly clear that the height game was going to dominate international play. And French had the whole campaign, Operation Grand Taille, uh, Operation Great Height, where they tried to have all of their PE teachers and any of the coaches throughout the country identify tall players or, or even not even players. So for kids who didn't even play to report back aha, we see that there is this very tall teenager who's maybe not playing our sport, but who looks like they could possibly be a good player. They would go detect that player and try to get them to play the game, recruit them to the game. That's actually how Boris Diaz's mother, Elizabeth Rishiad, started playing basketball. She was super tall. Um, she hadn't really been playing basketball, but she was recruited to the game as a 16-year-old by one of the then high school PE teachers. So that's one way that the French tried to keep up with everyone else internationally. They also recognized that it was a question of technique and tactics and that the more traditional French style playing a ripopo or a very pass-centric ballet on the court, as it was described to me, that was no longer going to cut it at the international level, particularly once you've got players like Bill Russell entering the scene and taking the game to new vertical heights, new athletic heights. Um, it, it became clear to Brusnel that the French had to, you had to adapt or get left behind. And France came out of World War II pretty good internationally. At the 1948 Olympics, they fought the United States for the gold medal. They lost, they took silver in a David versus Goliath match. And, but in the European Basketball Championship, 1949, they took silver. The next several iterations throughout the 1950s, bronze. And the women's team also was very good. They took bronze at the inaugural FIBA Women's World Cup in 1953. You, do, you did have this tradition of French international success. In 1960, that myth is punctured. The World 1960 Games, in which the French men's team got eliminated from the tournament after its first two or three games, really helped to puncture that myth of French success internationally. And it then took many years to recover from that. It took many years before the French again qualified for an Olympic Games. If 1960 was that critical zero hour for French basketball at the Olympics, they did not qualify for the Games again until 1984, more than 20 years later. At the World Cup level, they competed in 1963, but did not, were not qualified again to compete at FIBA World Cup until 1986. Again, more than a 20-year deficit. And so part of the attempt to rectify this was to look to other basketball-playing cultures. And one of this was naturally the United States, the birthplace of the game. And there were, after 1968, there were a lot of American players who went to France and played basketball. There are some female players as well, including recent Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame inductee with the 1976 U.S. women's basketball team, Gail Marquis. I think she is one of the 
first players I've been able to find, female players, to go over and play pro in France or semi-pro in France. And so you start to have this kind of mixing on the courts. And keep in mind, it wasn't just Americans going to France to play basketball. There are other nationalities playing basketball on French hard courts in the less so in the 50s, but far more so in the 1960s. Players from the former empire in Africa after independence in 1960, players from Senegal, from Cameroon, Congo, elsewhere, but also players from other parts of Europe, particularly Eastern Europe. So French basketball became known as a big melting pot on and off the court, even as it was small, even as it was not fully on the men's side, it was not fully professional until the 1987 season. And on the women's side, not professional until I think 98 or 1999. But I wanted to read this one great quote from Basketball Empire. It's a quote by Pauline Ikambi, female legends of the game, who was also the first French woman to play NCAA Division I basketball in the United States and on scholarship. <clears throat> she told me, our championship was multicultural and stronger because of cultural exchanges. It still enriches French performance today, she said, of the Eastern Europeans, Africans, and Americans who played in and contributed to the French game. And so I think there's definitely something there in terms of having a very polyglot league, mm -hmm. of having and also country in general. We forget that France is also, like the United States, a historic destination for immigrants. And so I think all of these go into helping to explain why France has become a main pipeline for players into the NBA, WNBA, and NCAA. It also has something to do with their successful equation for youth detection and training, but also this kind of openness to outside cultures and ideas, taking parts of that and working it into the French game. And you see yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, and it almost sounds like the, the polyglot nature of it and the multiculturalism of the game in France in those years was a significant factor in why French basketball players became more internationally competitive in the sense that there was, without that influx of players from the former colonies of France, for example, there wouldn't have been quite as much competition internally, domestically in France. And maybe that wouldn't have led to some of these players becoming of the caliber to play in the NBA. Is it be fair to say? I think it would be fair to say that without the influx of international uh, of players from anywhere else into France, you wouldn't have had that competition because there's an awful lot of Eastern Europeans as well as Americans. I think it's multi multi-fold and i think it's hard to say it's just any one group right but certainly the game and the national teams have been incredibly enriched by france's colonial legacies as yeah not that i condone any of their colonial oh, past i don't but right. just like in football france could not be a great football nation just as it can't be a great basketball um, nation in terms of results without contributions uh, from the former empire. Yeah. And it strikes me also, Lindsay, that like the, in the United States, as you right, rightly note in your book, it used to be the case that most American NBA, most NBA players were born in America. And then in recent years, what is 
the NBA, you write in your book that it's one in three players is now from another country. Nearly and one so, in three. And France is one of these basketball breeding grounds where a lot of players are coming from and through in order to make it. But it almost sounds like the French leagues predate the American league in terms of that diversity. Was it be fair to say? Yes, it would be fair to say, because when you think about who is playing in the NBA in the 1960s and 70s, I think it's what, 99% were Americans. The real international right. influx into the NBA has been, I think, since you had, obviously you had a few, Hakeem Olajuwon and Dikembe and a few others from Eastern Europe in the late 80s and 90s, but it's really been a 21st century phenomenon. But in France, they've had international players for a very long time, even if they have not been a fully professionalized league for a very long time. And I know now France is just seen as a breeding ground, but it's also a destination for teams to go and play. Mm -hmm. You had told me earlier that um, there are a couple of American NCAA teams in, in women's college basketball, for example, games in Paris. And I think you went to one between uh, Notre Dame and USC. Is that right? Yes. I went to their first official regular season women's NCAA basketball game on foreign soil. That was in Paris in November of 23 versus Notre Dame and South Carolina. That's fascinating. Oh, it's South Carolina, not USC. It is USC, but I'm a West Coast guy. So when I say USC, I always think of Southern California. So what do you make of that phenomenon that the NCAA is sending teams to, at least the universities are sending teams to France to play? I would be interested to see if it's a one-off or if that's a tradition like the NBA Paris game that is implemented particularly on the women's side. This past year, I think it was distinctive for two reasons. One, it was the ability to do something in to kick off the march towards Paris 2024, both for the teams as well as for their broadcaster, which is not the official broadcaster of the Olympics in the United States. That's NBC, college basketball, and CBS Sports for the most part. So I think that was one reason. Another reason is that the very winning and highly decorated head coach of South Carolina, Don Staley, early in her professional career, she played in France. So it was a way for her to help to share a little bit of that experience with her team, er, with her players. Mm -hmm. She said, I know from the French people in the basketball world, especially around Paris, they were super excited for this game. They were all there. It was a sold out crowd. There were a lot of Americans who did voyage and alumni who voyaged up for the game. So it was hard to tell the, the percentage of you know, Americans versus the percentage of French in the audience, but it was a sold out game. Uh, and there was a lot of excitement around the basketball community for it. There was very little knowledge about it outside of the basketball community. So those are two separate things. I would be very pleasantly surprised if this sort of tradition became annual for the, some of the top teams in the women's game, maybe for the men's game. I think it's important to state that their sponsor, one of the sponsors for women's basketball, was instrumental in helping to enable the teams to go. That's not an inexpensive trip. Right. Most definitely. And you mentioned Paris, the Olympics. We had another thing not talked about enough, but of course the summer games are in Paris this year. And what do you think might have been in the basketball competitions? We've got three now, right? Men's, women's, and three. There's yeah, three so four. Yeah, 
I will start with the three by three tournament, which I think is going to be super exciting. That was the first thing I tried to get tickets for and it was sold out. Oh, really? Yeah. So I went to the three by three, it was the three by three world championship in September of 21 that was held in Paris, the at Trocadero. So you had the Eiffel Tower right there in the background. It was awesome. It was like a fun street festival with a lot of basketball. And it was a taste of what's going to be at Paris 24. So I'm really excited for the three-on-three. The U.S. obviously has strong teams. France actually has super strong three-on-three teams. Their women's team has dominated European and international competition, winning several world titles as well. So I think they're going to be, it's going to be really keen competition there for the five-on-five tournaments. At both the men's and the women's, I am hoping for a final match between the United States and France. On the men's side, it would be a rematch of the Tokyo 2020 gold medal game, which remember the Americans only won in the last 10 seconds. It was a very tight game. And with 10 seconds left, there there was what a three point difference. Two calls, one shot. It could have gone entirely differently. Sure. The yeah. the French very much have revenge on their mind. The US does as well. And on the women's side, I think it's going to be Super competitive there as well. Of course, you have teams like Belgium, which are very strong right now. But France has been ranked number two by FIBA in the world for a while. And so I know they're gunning for gold. It's amazing. It's really fascinating. The men's and women's side of these French national teams are, are quite competitive. Yeah. And one thing I think that I should add that really feeds into a lot of this and maybe was not as explicitly embedded in basketball empire, but which I hear from numerous different people around basketball in in France who I talk to, they say part of it is just that the French are the most like the Americans out of Europe. Not that they're the most Americanized, because that's not necessarily the case, but they're the most like the United States and Europe, at least within the basketball world. And I think my interpretation of this is more that they're open to really good basketball, no matter where it comes from. So speaking to this openness of different cultures that they also, it's very much become more than just a game. It's part of a lifestyle and identity. It's got the sneaker culture, the, the fashion part of it, the brand activations, the, the music, mm-hmm. movies, all of that. And so I think there's something to that as well in that also because France has, again, been long a country of immigration, you have a lot of different demographic pools pooling into the country's sports scene. And because it is not a pay-for-play system at the youth level, anyone can play if they really want. There are ways or there are pathways to it. And there's a very strong federal detection system in place. So they are getting out and they're finding the talent and they're trying to activate it in a variety of development pipelines. So that's my sense of what what people mean when they tell me in basketball, the French are the most like the Americans. Mm -hmm. They also say that in terms of the athleticism on court. But I think that's where the similarities stop. The French are known for playing. French teams are known for their strong defense and for their strong collective teamwork over the individual. What, what about finding the talent? What about Joel Embiid? Do you think he'll be playing for the French national team this summer? I think 
didn't he say that he was going to play for the U.S.? I don't know if that's been etched in stone. I was hoping that since Nick Batum got traded to Philadelphia and is actually playing very well with Embiid and helping to serve him up in the way that only Nick, the ultimate glue guy, can really do. Hoping that might have influenced Embiid if he hadn't you know, officially signed on the dotted line. Now, I do he, think he did just score Embiid. 70 points in one game. Oh, he's flying mm-hmm. higher. I know, but I do think it will be Embiid with a Tasse. Uh, but on this, on the French side, you'll have Gobert, who is gunning for his fourth Defensive Player of the Year award this season, and Juan Banyama. So I think that's going to be a really interesting duo. Really strong team. Yeah, really excited to watch those games. Lizzie, this has been totally fascinating. I really appreciate you sharing this time with me and, and sharing so much of the insight that you've gained from writing both of your books, doing all of your work. And I always end these calls by asking my guests about the power of sports because it's obviously a subjective concept. So what is it to you after all all these years of being a fan and doing research and traveling the world, studying sports? What is the power of sports to you? The power of sports for me is the ability to connect with anyone, regardless of where in the world you are, what language they speak, or even if you can't really speak a language that well, regardless of background, because there's something so universal in sport that there's some aspect of sport you can find in common, even if you support rival teams. One of the things I always tell my students is that in order to be a truly great player or to have a truly great team, you need an equally great rival. Yes. And so it makes it easy to be on opposing sides, but still find that point of commonality because there's the respect there. So you've been able to um, befriend people in New York who are Yankees fans. The Yankees, that's something different. Thank you so much, Lizzie. I really appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and look forward to keeping in touch. Likewise, thanks so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Well, that'll do it for today's show. Many thanks again to Dr. Lindsay Sarah Krasnoff and many thanks to you for being such a wonderful audience. It's a real pleasure to get to make these shows and I really appreciate you enabling that by sharing the show with your friends. Have a wonderful day.